Hey everybody, this is Jeb Jarrell with Two Glasses of Bourbon. This week I am interviewing Barry Brenniger with RD1 Spirits, who produces the uh, William Tarr uh, Bourbon line, which you might have tried. If you haven't, you need to. I'm sitting here. It's 11 o'clock on a Friday. I might have a glass of it in front of me right now. Uh, so don't judge, but, uh, I want to thank Barry for joining me today. You know, I met Barry a while back over Instagram. I saw that what he was putting out, uh, you might've seen William Tara with, uh, Mark Stoops as well. And it's, he's putting out a great product and there's going to be a whole line. And honestly, I'm just going to go ahead and kick it over to him because he can tell the history of RD1 Spirits because there's even more to it than just the William Tara line. So Barry, thanks for coming. Jeb, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited about um, you know, meeting with you, and um, I'm so appreciative of you reaching out and um, having me on the um, on the podcast. Um, I, I'm I'm excited to be a part of the resurrection of the Lexington, Kentucky's first federally registered distillery, um, which was established in 1865 here on Manchester Street, and um, it, it was actually the the company was founded by a descendant of Henry Clay. And um, they, they called it the Ashland Distillery after the Ashland Estates. And um, if you and I know that, you know, history um, and um, for those who don't know the history, Henry Clay was directly responsible for taking distilled spirits to the capital. And um, and so, you know, uh, of course, um, this particular clay came years after uh, Henry Clay was was here in the um, in the Commonwealth. And um, so the Ashland Distillery was uh, around for several years. It really wasn't that successful. It, they, it didn't really take off like some of the other distilleries. And so enter in William Tarr. What William Tarr um, came from the Northeast, um, from Pennsylvania, and really came from humble beginnings. Um, he sold watermelons as a kid. Um, he was very entrepreneurial minded. And he um, he did team farming with his brother, which was super successful. And as you know, the the, the soil in, in in Kentucky in this region is very rich, and so um, grains grew in abundance. And because of that abundance, um, they had so much excess grain that they distilled it, and and that's really how they preserved it. And then and then sold that and used that for bartering. And so, so here's William Tarr, who um, uh, becomes very successful at, at farming. And then, like everybody back in the day, he did do distillation. And, um, and then he bought interest into the Chicken Cock Distillery, which was out of Paris, Kentucky. And uh, so the, the Chicken Cock Distillery has, is also a resurrected vintage brand. And I love seeing that on the shelf, you know, kind of close to Old W.M. Tar. Old Elk is another resurrected uh, brand that was in the RD1 portfolio. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But um, so, so William Tar sold his interest into the Chicken Cock Distillery. And then he bought the Ashland Distillery in 1871, along with another fellow by the name of Thomas Magabin. H have you heard of Thomas Magabin? Uh, just a little bit. I, I read your website and kind yeah. of did a little bit of the research on there, but that's about yeah. it. Yeah. So, so Thomas Magabin um, had interest in a, about six distilleries back in that day. Um, he was a very influential person in the world of, of, of distilling and, in fact, went on to become the first Kentucky Distillers Association president in 1880. So, so a, a very significant link to um, the KDA with Thomas Magaman being a partner of William Tarr. And so, so William Tarr and Thomas Magaman continued the brand um, and so continued the Ashland label. 
And, um, and then they came out with their first label called Old WM Tar, which is how we resurrected it. So if you see on the label of our label, it's Old WM Tar. And we, we wanted that consistency in, um, in connection to the historic nature of the brand. And um, so, so um, Thomas Megavan and uh, William Tarr, um, they, uh, they were super successful early on. And, um, and then they, there was a distillery fire that, that occurred uh, back in the late 1870s. And um, it, it's, it's so funny. I tell the story. Um, the, it was the Rick House itself was advertised as being fireproof. And, and so anytime you, you put a label on something that is fireproof or unsinkable. I was just gonna... thinking the Titanic. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. on the same page. 100%. So it's going to it's going to burn and it's going to sink, you know, because there there's no absolutes. You you can't challenge God like that. It doesn't work. It's you just have Never. to just say like mostly fireproof. Just just put put a qualifier yeah. out there. And you're going to be better off. We put safety options in to hopefully prevent fire. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So so they they rebuilt the distillery and renamed it the William Tar Distillery. Okay. And um, and so then as as we continue on with the entrepreneurial nature of William Tarr, ever the speculator, he um, he started speculating on the railroad industry. And as we understand in, in that time in history, the railroad industry was responsible for moving things from point A to point B and and people. And so he um, he along with Thomas Megabin um, founded the um, this uh, this railroad company. And um, and so he he got his friends, his family, people from out of state to invest in the um, in, in the railroad industry and, and, and building it. And, and so let me let me back up just a little bit. So um, in the mid 1860s, the federal government's coming off of the Civil War and, uh, and and they need revenue. They need the ability to start getting revenue. And so this was when the government first started registering distilleries. So within the state of Kentucky, it was divided up into seven different districts, and each district had an RD1, registered distillery one, RD2, and, and so on. So the, the, the connection of that, the, the registration of distilleries is um, before distilled spears plant. So DSPs were assigned after prohibition. When prohibition ended, then the um, distilled spears <coughs> plant was the new designation. But before that, in the 1800s, it was RD1, registered distillery. And that, that's our, our brand is RD1 Spirits. It's, it's, the, um, it's the parent company. And we have a gift shop pop-up. That's where I'm, I'm here now. I, this is not a, a video podcast, right? This is an audio. <laughs> no, 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 it's not. So if, if, you're, if your listeners could see, you know, I'm, I'm in, the, um, I'm in this, uh, this old Rick house. It was built in the 1940s. It actually housed about um, fifteen to twenty thousand barrels, and and so we have a location right here in this historic Rick House. But this is a pop-up location, and we do have plans to build a distillery about a block away on Main Street in Lexington, Kentucky. So, okay. so as I'm as I'm talking about the history, I wanted to make that you know that point is is pretty important to us because we want to tell the story of registered distillery number one. So this RD one, whoever owns the brand, 
owns that RD1 designation. Now, obviously, we're not going to be DSP number one because <laughs> we, we know Heaven Hill uh, owns that title and designation. But we we want to be able to tell that that story of um, 1865 all the way to the end of Prohibition. So we we changed a, a, our branding our, our a little bit um, to really go back to RD1, and and um, and so when um, when William Tarr then rebuilt the distillery in the late 1870s, he uh, he did rebrand at the William Tarr Distillery and um, continued to be successful, but. The speculation in the railroad um, has some ominous trends, and and some of those trends are that we're we're kind of entering into um, a, a bit of a depression, and um, and then the cost of steel doubles, and 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 they're using convicts to build the railroad, and unfortunately they weren't treated really well, so you know it gets cold here in the winter months in in Kentucky. Um, which is a, a, a reason why we do so well when we make bourbon is because <laughs> of the, the expansion contraction of the changing of the seasons. But um, so so we we have some issues with the railroad. The cost of steel increases significantly. And so there's there's trouble. And and so um, Thomas Magabin and William Tarr have to sell this railroad at a 50 percent ruinous loss. Ouch. And uh, but Tar being ever the um, the the stand up guy that he was, he covered all the debt of all the people, the friends, the family that he brought in to his demise. And so so, you know, kind of puts him on um, a, a tricky footing there. He he tries to raise um, bonds to to help shore up the um, the balance statement. But the end was evident in the um, in the late 1890s. And so he has to he, he he has to declare bankruptcy and the distillery goes into receiverships. And have you heard of the Whiskey Trust? I have. Yeah. So so the Whiskey Trust, as, as you and I know, and probably a lot of your listeners know, um, was buying up distilleries all uh, at that time. And and so they're they're essentially creating a monopoly. And and so they um, they're buying up any farmland and, and anything that hel helps within that that spirits brand. And so they bought the distillery in the late 1890s, um, but they had a, a, a great relationship with um, with Stoll. Um, and, and so there, there's um, a, a Richard Stoll and James Stoll. And so um, if you've heard of the company called Stoll and Veneta, um, they actually bought the brand um, uh, from the Whiskey Trust a couple of years later. And so, so then come enter into the, um, the other brands that the RD1 purchased, which was, you, you've heard of Old Elk, which we mentioned earlier in the podcast. Old Elk is a resurrected brand out of Colorado, and, um, and, but that was in the portfolio of RD1. Also, you probably heard of E.L. Miles, Bond and Lillard, New Hope, might not have heard of that one, Bourbon Deluxe, um, which is now a resurrected brand by Jim Beam. Um, and so all of these brands um, were in the RD1 portfolio. And one of the things that, um, that the Bell of Marion did was went on to be a multi-award winning whiskey um, back in the um, early 1900s. And so there's some synergy between our first release, what you're sipping on there, which is the Manchester Reserve. That's a blend of an eight-year rye, um, which the mash bill is 51% rye, 37 corn, 
12% malted barley. So a high corn rye mash bill, rye whiskey. And then um, the, the bourbon in the mash bill is 75% corn, 13% rye and 12% malted barley. And so, um, so this one, when we launched back in October of 2020, um, went on to be entered into a lot of spirits competitions, which we wanted to get validation that we had a, a good um, um, small batch whiskey. And, um, and so it actually has won a platinum medal. It's won two gold medals and it's won two silver medals. So the experts agree it's a premium Kentucky whiskey. And what we wanted to do is um, when we resurrected the brand, we know we have a, a great history to tell but um, it's super important that um, consumers like the product, you know, so they, they can love yep. the story, but if the product isn't good, then they're they not going to buy one buy bottle. Yep. They buy one bottle and then they never come back. Yep. They're one and done. And, and that's one of the things that we were very intentional about is that we wanted um, not only to help resurrect the story, but we wanted to have a great product. And so I believe we've successfully done that with the Manchester Reserve. Now we have since released a proof down version. That's 114 proof if you've got that gray label. Um, yep. but, but then we've released a, another Manchester Reserve at 96.4 proof. And that is a, um, a blue and white, those two colors together <laughs> label. And I'll talk a little bit about um, why we did that um, here in just a moment. But um, but the uh, the 96.4 proof also has gone on to be a gold medal winning whiskey. So we're getting validation that, you know, we did something right with the blend of these two mash bills. It's Kentucky straight, which means that, you know, we're we're, a, what's, we're what's called a non distiller producer. So we are sourcing barrels right now and we're being intentional that we're only looking at Kentucky distillate because we want to resurrect a Kentucky vintage brand and so with the um with the launch of that we um we also launched a 12-year kentucky straight bourbon and um, this one's super premium super limited release um there's no bottles of that left in distribution we had a small batch 120 proof product and then we still have about 300 bottles of the single barrel here at the at the gift shop and and it's a gift shop only release and so you know once those 300 are gone there's no more of that aged whiskey but we were super intentional that we wanted to come out with a with two really good products and and i believe we fulfilled that i believe that we um we, we've done a great job and validation in that they they're they're award-winning and um and and the uh, the manchester reserve which you're drinking which is the um the small batch uh, blend of rye and, and bourbon is is a limited release too. We'll probably have that on the shelf for about another year at the most. And and then once that's gone, um, we're going to try to replicate, um, continue to blend. But um, if you know the, the bourbon market right now, you know that um, bourbon is in huge demand. And, um, and, and so there's not a whole lot of aged barrels on the, on the, on the market right now because distilleries are not selling those. They're, they're, they don't want to sell them to non-distiller producers. They want to convert those to products to sell to the market because um, you also um, are probably aware that the, the tariffs that were on American whiskey have been um, done away with. So that outside the U.S. market has again opened back up. And it's a huge market for Kentucky and for America to, um, to um, 
sell those products outside the U.S. Now, there's a huge U.S. demand for um, for bourbon, and um, we're uh, we're excited to continue to to grow. So what we what we like to say, and and we're owned right now. Um, so I'll tell you, Mark Stoops, the University of Kentucky football coach, is one of our majority owners. And so the label that we um, released was a UK, <laughs> I can say it's a UK blue and white with no UK logo on the label because UK would not appreciate that. But we, um, we, we wanted to recognize um, the influence of, of Coach Stoops. And we're so thankful that, you know, he um, has, uh, we've, we've kept him here at, at UK and, um, and very supportive. Big, Big Blue Nation is very supportive of Coach Stoops and we're very thankful that he's one of our partners. Um, he is a division one coach. So uh, during the season, he's hands off, um, you know, he's, he's very busy, but um, now that he's um, got a, a few months of uh, a break in between his recruiting visits that he does, um, we're gonna take coach out on a, what we call a coach caravan. And we're gonna go to each market within Kentucky to, um, to, to thank um, our customers and, and really um, promote our, our bottles. We are gonna be coming out this year with a, an, another Kentucky straight bourbon product. And um, we're, we're doing our, um, our research and, and blending and, and, and doing a few things with that product. So we do hope to have a, another product on the shelf um, mid to, to late year um, this year. That's, oh, sorry, go ahead. That's, that's no, super no, no. cool though. Yeah, yeah go ahead. I, I'm, um, I'm, I'm talking a lot. No, you're fine. I, I'm gonna have like 30 different questions and I'm just kind of like marking them down as we go because you've covered so much that uh, it, it's sparking kind of interest like, that's kind of what I want to talk about is how you got the idea for RD1 Spirits. How did you take it and from conception to saying, you know what, I'm assuming you had to go and buy the rights to the RD1 name, and how did you go ahead and license that, and how did you go through that, and then are you actually doing the uh, the uh, the distillery, not the distillery, the, the blending yourself, or do you have it a master blender on staff that's handling all that? You know, yeah. I, that's what I want to kind of go through here in a minute, but please let's go through everything you want to uh, talk about with that'll just give you more things to ask about absolutely well let, let me go through um who, who owns this first because that that's an important piece of it and, and then because it leads into your questions that, that you just had there um so also our other majority owners are mike tetterton and, and marcia couch with key investment solutions and um, anybody that is from Lexington knows uh, about um, Creative Lodging Solutions over in the Beaumont area. It's a large company that, that booked um, hotel stays for um, large corporate clients. They, they sold that company and then they established an investment firm. And so we had reached out to, to Coach Stoops first and then to um, Key Investments. And they had initially came in as investors. But as, um, as you understand, um, you know, part of doing a startup in any business, but especially in, in distilled spirits, is there's a huge need for a lot of marketing revenue to, to be able to pay for branding, marketing of your product. And, um, you know, typically when you, when you start, if, you ever, if anyone's ever thinking of starting a, um, a company, um, a non-distiller producer, or even a distillery, there's so much um, money and investment that is required. So, so I, I would say that if you think that you need, uh, you're raising a million dollars or three million dollars, you probably need to um, triple or quadruple that number because it, it really, it, it really is required. And I, that's not even building a, a, a distillery. 
a distillery build is going to be anywhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 million dollars so you got to have revenue right or you got to have enough money that you're using that investment wisely so we we saw very quickly that um, we needed more um, infusion of cash and so the um, mark stoops and mike tetterton marcia couch took over the company and and infused a significant amount of money for us to be able to market the product and 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 then um, have a liquid strategy you you have to have a liquid strategy that goes out five to ten years which requires you to distill a, a lot of barrels or or buy a lot of barrels on the um, on the on that broker market and so we're we're currently doing contract distilling um, we've got um, we've got a significant amount of barrels in our inventory that um, that that we're still at that craft distillery level so if you understand the designation of being a legacy distillery compared to a craft distillery it's really based on how much inventory you got so so an inventory of 50,000 barrels or left or less keep you in that craft distillery category and so we're still a craft brand um, but we are um, we, we are on the Kentucky Distillers Association craft bourbon trail um, so we're the 47th member that that's a part of that organization so um, how how I got started was I was um, I'm a digital marketer I own a digital marketing company and, and I, I would meet with a lot of different Lexington business owners and um, in, in doing that um, if you if you know Lexington um, folks we're, we're very proud of the state you know the, the horse industry we have Keeneland here in Lexington um, University of Kentucky sports you know basketball and football and all the other associated sports with the University of Kentucky and then bourbon, you know, bourbon's in our, in our blood. And, and if not, you know, physically it's in your blood because you're sipping here at 11 o'clock. <laughs> That's, you know, we'll keep that on the down low, but yes, yeah, you're right. absolutely. But, um, but so as I'm meeting these business owners, um, you know, everybody's talking about this, this, this huge multi-billion dollar bourbon tourism market, you know, so bourbon, the bourbon industry, represents um you know i i know this figure's wrong because we're we're in covid but but we're going to see a huge resurgence of bourbon tourism but we're looking at, at about a 5.8 billion dollar an industry per year to the state and so when you look at the bourbon trail you you see prominently on there bardstown is the bourbon capital of the world you see that um frankfurt has buffalo trace they they have now castle and key and you know, Woodford, um, they've got, yeah. um, I'm thinking, I can't think of the third, uh, old grand, the old granddad, I can't yeah, remember yeah. what it's called, but, uh, yeah, uh, let's see, uh, uh, old crow distillery, OCD, OCD. Um, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah not old yeah. granddad. Yeah. But, but it was the, the, it was the, um, old granddad distillery, uh, way back when, um, and now it's owned by, um, by Dave and OCD stands for old crazy Dave. Um, <laughs> but, but he, he's a great guy. When, when you go on the, uh, on tours, you see him personally he's directly involved with the brand and he's the owner so so lo love love that so you see frankfurt also represented in the um in in, in the bourbon world and in, in bourbon tourism and um and louisville you know louisville has the urban bourbon trail and if you look at history the um whiskey row was right there on the on the river 
And so there's a lot of distilleries there. So the resurrection of the urban bourbon trail um, really helped drive bourbon tourism to the Louisville market. But with Lexington, we, we have great distilleries here. You know, we have James Pepper, um, a historic brand that coexisted with um, RD1 back in the back in the day. Um, you have Town Branch, which has um, some fabulous products. The Barrel House was actually the first distillery that was here in Lexington, in the Lexington Distillery District. And that's located on Manchester Street here in Lexington, Kentucky. And, um, and then you've got Bluegrass Distillers. So what we found was that there's not a coordination of efforts to really help drive that bourbon tourism to Lexington. You know, people will come from out of state, out of the country, they may fly into Lexington, but they're off to Bardstown, they're off to Louisville, they're off to Frankfurt. And um, one of our goals was to help create and establish a Lexington, Kentucky base. And for lack of a better term, a junction tour, because we have um, we have uh, R.J. Corman right here, um, uh, a train track, and we have train tracks that kind of traverse the um, distillery district. And Lexington is now placing a town branch trail which is a walkable pedestrian trail that's about 22 miles of pedestrian walkway that's going to connect to the Legacy Trail. And, um, and so that, that Town Branch Trail, it immediately parallels where we're located here in the Pepper Rick House uh, in the distillery district. So we know that there's a concerted effort on the part of the city of Lexington to help really drive tourism but we wanted to help become that anchor of all the distilleries here to, to really help drive bourbon tourism. So that was really kind of the focus of, uh, we had an aha moment. Um, there was, uh, if you know Manchester Music Hall, which is on, um, on Manchester Street, that is actually bonded warehouse number one for RD1. That's awesome. And, um, and so when, it, when William Tarr rebuilt the distillery back in the late 1870s, um, he rebuilt the, um, so we've got the um, bonded warehouse number one, which is Manchester Music Hall, and then that was converted to an administrative building. But some of the renderings that you see online, if you, if you go Google um, uh, Lexington's first federal registered distillery, you're going to pull up a whole lot of indexing of, of history. And uh, a, a lot of that history, there's some renderings on there. One of the renderings shows bonded warehouse number one, that's actually Manchester Music Hall. And, and it's so cool that it's standing today. And, um, and so the, the original founders wanted to, to, to resurrect the brand because we read a lot of the history about um, the uh, Lexington's first federal registered distillery. And there's so much uh, of a historic connection there. So that, that was really the, the impetus for, for the resurrection of the brand. Um, you know, myself, I, at, at, the, at the first oppor opportunity to invest, I wasn't really um, interested because I was working in a distribution model. And so if you understand um, how the, the um, American spirits category, there's three tiers within, within that category. So there's a supplier tier, there's a distributor tier, and then there's a point of sale tier. And so you cannot have ownership in more than one tier, it's illegal. And so, so, you know, I initially said, thanks, but no thanks, I'm working on another model. But, um, but as um, time uh, evolved, 
that model was less and less of an opportunity because of the barriers to entry. You know, think about all the infrastructure required to, to get a distribution network set up. It, yeah, it, it really, it's, it, it's really tough, lots of competition. So I came back and, you know, to the original group and said, hey, I'm interested and, and got involved that way. And so one of the things that I'll credit our success was that we, um, that we reached out to a, a local attorney. Um, his name is Steve Amato. And uh, Steve Amato is also the legal counsel for the Kentucky Distillers Association. And, and so Steve um, recognized that we were sitting on something very special. And he put us in contact with some bourbon consultants. So if you're going to get involved in a bourbon brand, the one thing that you don't want to do is you want you don't want to try to figure things out for yourself because don't, uh, don't reinvent the wheel. Someone has the, probably already done it. Yeah, Pay the money I, and do it. Have 100%. them do it. Because, um, you know, you want to avoid a costly mistake that bankrupts you, number one. And, and they're going to have the connections. You know, they're going to have... Um, we, we've been there, done that. And, um, and then some of the opportunities that, that kind of came our way with working with these bourbon consultants really helped us to be able to develop what you're drinking there, the Manchester reserve. So it really was a part of these consultants that came in to help us find some aged barrels. So the majority of what you're drinking is eight year products. So there's an eight year rye, and then there's an eight and seven year bourbon that's in that blend uh, of those two mash bills. And, um, and so the early on, the, the blending was really a part of that collaboration with the founders and, and with, the, um, with the bourbon consultants. But we very quickly knew that, you know, as we're gonna continue to evolve, we've got to make sure that we're bringing on the right people. And so bringing on the right people meant that we had a change of leadership with um, Mike Tetterton and Marsha Couch. They're running the company. And so um, coach Mark Stoops also continued to contribute a significant amount of investment and, and ownership uh, of, the, um, of the company. So we, we kind of look at him as our celebrity ambassador. Um, and, and so, you know, the coach um, Caravan, um, he loves getting out and meeting with people. He, he loves talking whiskey, wine, but most importantly, Kentucky football. I'm so, okay with that. As yeah. a UK alum, I, I like all those things. Yeah, me too. Me too. Absolutely. So, so that's really, you know, how we got started and, and, you know, where we, where we started from, you know, as we continue to pivot and, and look at out into the, the future year, five years and 10 years, we we don't really have right now a need for a master distiller because we're doing contract distilling. Um, but what we do have a need for is is marketing and and really getting that word out. So we're using some high um, visibility people that are doing our marketing. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not allowed to say their name, <laughs> uh, but um, but I'm hoping that at some point we will be able to um, just know it's a it's someone very high up in the um, in the bourbon world. Um, uh, Hall of Famer, and um, and then um, Dixon Deadman, you, you know mm -hmm. Dixon. Oh yeah, um, he, Kentucky Al. Yeah, he resurrected Kentucky Al, and then that was sold to um, Stoley, but um, but he's now released um, from that brand, and um, he's doing some consulting on the side. So he's actually our master blender consultant, and oh, so as, as we're as we're doing some of the the um, 
the blending, some of the um, experimentation with that next um, release, um, he's going to be intimately involved in the um, in the flavor profile and and what we put out there. So when you're looking from uh, release to release, do you want to have a similar uh, flavor profile or do you want to have each individual expression stand on its own? Critical. What that question is absolutely critical. So when you're when you're coming out with a brand, um, you cannot sustain a product after product that's different. Um, consumers now I'll, I'll say that with a caveat um, barrel bourbon for instance huge success but they have so much expertise in in blending and they have a lot of inventory and and so you can do that but as you look at release after release you lose your 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 base because they're looking for that consistency and you know when you're finishing in a rum cast compared to a sherry cast completely different flavor profile. So we, we, you will see some limited release of some blending that we're doing, but the product that we come out with this year is going to be our staple product in perpetuity and what we will, what we will release in, in Kentucky and in um, outside the, the Kentucky marketplace. So what we like to say, our tagline right now is we're locally owned, we're locally sourced, and you can only find us on store shelves in Kentucky. And, and that really like that. fits the bill for us right now. But, um, you know, we're, we're working with online direct consumer um, shipping and we are looking to go outside the Kentucky market. So we, we will have to adjust that tagline <laughs> a little bit, you know, when we move outside of Kentucky. But right now that is correct. Well, the important thing is, or in my mind anyway, is that it's source locally. Honestly, whether, yeah. where you sell it, that doesn't matter. It's the same product, yeah. but, uh, and I'm not saying that other places can't make great bourbon, make great whiskey. I mean, Tennessee, uh, and Indiana make great, great product. Yeah. Um, but it's just not the same cachet. I mean, I, I'm yeah. a little bit of an elitist when it comes to, comes to that. So, yeah. um, that's really cool. I, I like that, that you're going to have one line. So does that mean that, will that be the contract distilled, uh, juice that you're using as that line? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, that, that's exactly right. And and we were fortunate to be able to secure some aged barrels of that same mash bill, and so so we're we're doing some experimentation right now with a non-aged dated Kentucky straight bourbon. That was my question because I was cu- kind of curious. I, you said your first product came out, I mean, twenty twenty, and so you know if you're trying to get go for another seven year product, that was going to be impressive if you were able to find that many barrels. Because I mean, you you weren't kidding earlier when you said they are rarer than hen's teeth to find right now that six to eight year niche is just nearly impossible so yeah but you know that better than i do so for you you know what was the impetus were you have you always been a whiskey uh a bourbon buff or what's what what led led you to this space yeah so i I think that um you know I'll, i'll caveat this that um and and i've said this um uh out in, in public many times, I have legally been consuming <laughs> bourbon, um, you know, my, my whole life. Um, uh, you know, I, I can, I can tell you, I grew up on, um, Southern comfort, uh, liqueur, Ooh. but <laughs> I know, I know, I, no, I, I, zero judgment. Cause I, I've done the exact same thing. American honey was one of my favorite drinks in college after yeah. I turned 21, wink, yeah, wink, yeah. nudge, nudge. <laughs> but yeah, no, no judgment, but I understand it's yeah, yeah. different times. So, 
So I think that, you know, if, if you're born and raised in Kentucky or you move in the state of Kentucky, there's this sense of, of, of bourbon that kind of overtakes you. You know, whether if you, even if you're a teetotaler, um, the history, the, the impact of what Kentucky brings to bourbon, 95% of all the world's bourbon comes from Kentucky for a reason. And, and those reasons are because we, um, back before, you know, we, we take non-ionic water to distill, we had limestone that was filtering the iron out of the water. And if you didn't do that process or didn't use that water, then iron turns distillate black and unpalatable. So, so critical. And, and so it used to be said that if you had a distillery off of the limestone shelf, then you were, weren't going to be a successful distillery because of that, the, the nature of having iron in the, um, in the water. So that limestone um, water is critical, what was critical for the success of distilleries back in the day. Then, um, you know, I mentioned we have the, the four seasons in Kentucky, so that um, the cold causes contraction, the heat of, of, of the summer, um, Kentucky summers, um, humid, hot, um, causes an expansion of, of, of that alcohol into the barrel. And, and 60 to 70% of the flavor comes from the barrel. And white oak is grown in abundance in this region. And, and so, you know, in order to be called a bourbon, it has to be 51% corn. It has to um, go in the barrel at no higher than 125 proof. It has to come off of that still no higher than 160 proof. And it has to go into a new charred oak container, a vessel. It doesn't have to be a barrel but it has to be new charred oak that uh, has never been used and nothing can be added to the, that distillate other than water. So because of all of those things, it really makes Kentucky um, flourish with, uh, with bourbon. So that's why, uh, you know, we've got major distilleries here that are you know, producing the, the majority of a bourbon, American bourbon. And, um, and so bourbon can be made anywhere outside of the state of Kentucky. Uh, it can be made um, anywhere in the continental U.S. But, um, you know, those reasons I stated before are why Kentucky makes the majority of the bourbon. So w when you started the process to build RD1 Spirits, what was the biggest, uh, biggest factor? What was, the, what was the biggest problem that came up that you just didn't expect? Is there anything that kind of surprised you? Yeah, um, I, I underestimated the regulation, the regulatory nature of, um, of, of, of spirits, the spirits industry. And, and credit Steve Amato. Um, so Steve Amato and, and McBrayer Law Firm um, have a hybrid um, setup with, um, with, with TTB, um, the uh, Tobacco Trade um, and Alcohol um, uh, Organization, so, so, um, and ABC. Um, the alcohol beverage control. And so what they were able to do, which most other attorneys struggle with, is being able to, um, to submit and then get a, a DSP designation. So whether you're going to have a, a gift shop um, and, and sell your bottles, you have to have a different license than if you just want to be a rectifier and, and only buy barrels and, and put them in bottles, then you don't have the legal right to own a gift shop and sell those, which is critical to the success because us being a new brand, um, putting it into distribution is good, but you, you have to sell to the distributor at a different cost. 
that get, then gets marked up to the point of sell, that then gets marked up to sell to the public at large. Um, we have the ability as a DSP to be able to own a gift shop. We also have a, a bar in our gift shop pop-up. So customers can come and, and they can buy a bottle from us. They, they can buy alcohol um, from a bar. Uh, it's called an NQ2 license. And you can only get that if you have a DSP. And so a lot of the, and, and the rules change from year to year. I'll tell you a, a one important change um, for, for craft brands and, and legacy brands alike is that in, in 2022, there, there was a rule that allowed the producers um, like, like ourselves, um, RD1 Spirits and, and all the other distilleries to be able to move product that they own and, and that they distilled or, or that they have purchased, um, sourced, and, and, and bottle that in their gift shop or the location in their distillery and then sell that without going through the distributor. Before, it was, a, it was an exercise on paper that we had to sell it to the distributor and then the distributor would sell it back to us, which marked up the, the, the price. Um, that's gone away in 2022. And that's a tribute to the Kentucky Distillers Association lobbying on behalf of, of us, the, the, um, the KDA members. Um, and and it, even if you're not a member of the KDA, they're still lobbying on the part of the supplier to help make those rules favorable. The other thing that happened last year in 2021 was the legal right for distilleries to ship direct to consumer. Did you so, know that was going to be my next question? Because that was <laughs> actually going to be my next question, DTC alcohol and yeah. how it's affected you guys. Huge, huge opportunity. Now, I, I will say that there's a lot of regulations that you have, you know, check marks boxes that you've got to make sure. And, and again, getting back to the regulatory nature of, of, of this industry was one of the things I really wasn't aware of. You know, I wasn't I wasn't a, I was in the know. So now the, the more that I recognize that, the more that we lean super heavily on our attorney and our bourbon advisors to make sure that, you know, we're doing everything the right way so that we, you know, you, the, the last thing you want to do is do something illegal without knowing it. And it doesn't matter that you either did it knowingly or not knowingly, you're responsible for knowing the regulations. So, so super important for us to, to really lean heavily um, in that, um, in that category. So looking forward, you know, I, I know the spirit market has changed so much over the last 10 years or 20 years, let's go 20 years, um, bourbon in particular, that the bourbon world went from having a glut to no one wanted to drink it because it was grandfather's spirit. And now you can't sell, you know, I heard um, someone from Maker's Mark recently say that they've sold every single bottle they've ever produced from the 50s on. Um, and I know, I mean, everyone sold out. So do you see that continuing? Do you see the market continuing to grow? Or where do you think we're going to be in the next 10 years? I love that question. And, and that's a super important question. Um, it, when you look at the, um, the growth of, of bourbon specifically, it, it is on such a steep incline. And, um, and when you look at the industry historically, you see these swings of about 35 years of growth within the, the bourbon industry. We're, we're right now in a, a surge. And, and that surge really started um, somewhere in the, in the mid-90s 
and uh, in, in early 2000. Um, so the, the KDA's first job was to help with regulations um, for our industry, but they recognized in, in the mid 90s to, to early 2000s that there was this, this, this significant change in, in consumers visiting distilleries. And so they were on the early end encouraging legacy distilleries, hey, build gift shops, build, um, build these attractions to bring in the consumers to show them how you, how you distill. And, um, and so the establishment of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail was, um, was born then in that late um, 1990s to early 2000s. Um, so, so if you look at that trend right now, we're in about a 20 year, um, or so, um, steep incline of, of demand for bourbon. And so, um, if we, if we look historically, then we're on about another 15 years of continued expansion of, of the industry and, and growth. So, so that's kind of, you know, if I, if I look at history, that that's kind of uh, where we are along that pathway for demand of a bourbon. That's, that's reassuring. I mean, I, I, I like to hear that. And I honestly, I kind of figured that was when you look at all the investment that's going into that area, obviously you wouldn't be putting in all the, all the companies out there wouldn't be putting the money into uh, expansion if they didn't see a reason for it. But I just want to make sure it's, yeah. you're the expert here. So that makes sense. Um, that's, that's really cool. And honestly, I, I'm, as we're getting kind of closer to the end, I, I want to make sure, are we, are there, is there anything that I should have asked that I haven't yet? Um, let's see, let's see. I, I think, I think we've kind of touched on a lot of important things. The one thing I will say is that, you know, we just launched our gift shop pop-up, um, here in the distillery district. And so if, if consumers want to come right now, we're only scheduling private events just because of the nature of where we are in a global pandemic of COVID. And so, so I do believe that in 2022, we're going to see um, a, a lessening uh, of the issues that we're dealing with with a global pandemic. And so we do intend to have um, walk-in hours here, probably in the early spring, because, um, you know, spring in the bluegrass, um, we've got the Keeneland. Um, the, people and will so be coming in for love, Churchill. There will yep, be so yep. much going on. It's the best time of the year. It is the best time of the year. So we will have um, walk-in hours probably Wednesday through Saturdays here. And um, and so we would love to have um, consumers come and, and check us out. Um, if they want to rent this place, then we have a caterer that will bring small bites up to a full meal. We could accommodate 60 people in our location here. So, so um, I, I guess what I would say is that if you're interested, check us out online, rd1spirits.com. Um, and we're I'll on, drop a link. And, yeah. I'll drop a link in the show notes, so you can always just click through. It'll, it'll make it super easy for you. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, yeah. And, and Instagram, RD One Spirits, and uh, Facebook. Um, if anybody has experienced uh, with Facebook with a business account, it is impossible, near impossible, to change your name without. Um, so there's a whole legal process to go through. So right now, our Facebook is still WM Tar. Um, but we're, we're hoping to change that to RD1 to be representative of, of the brand from 1865 all the way to through Prohibition. So actually, that is one other question I had. 
Um, so looking at your overall portfolio, uh, I know you mentioned there was Old Elk, there was uh, WM Tar, there were, and there were several other um, brands within that portfolio. So right now you have the Manchester Reserve and you have uh, Inheritance. Will you be uh, reviving other portfolio brands or will you be riffing on what you're already doing? What's, what's that going to look like? Yeah. So um, a lot of the trademarks, you know, Bond and Lillard, um, Wild Turkey have resurrected that. Old Elk has been resurrected. Um, the one that hasn't that really is the, the first brand was Ashland. And um, the, the problem with Ashland is there's, you know, with trademarking, the trademark looks at uh, what are, are, is there any confusion that's going to happen on the part of the consumer with the trademark. And so Ashland is a little problematic. Um, in that we, we do have the Ashland estate, um, we do have Ashland oil, but more importantly in the category of spirits is that there's an Ashland seltzer out there um, on the West Coast. And so um, our trademark attorney believes that we can get a coexisting agreement. Um, so we anticipate having an Ashland label but not before we go through all the, the hoops that, that have to go through for that. Um, so with that in mind, we're probably going to resurrect and have um, names of, um, of historic significant um, to the brand. And so we, we have about seven trademarks that, um, that are in our pocket that will, um, will probably be resurrected. Um, and, and so you should, you should see more of those labels in the future. Okay, so just keep an eye out. Uh, yeah. Well, everything's, honestly, it's all super exciting. And I can't wait to try some of the new product. And honestly, I can't wait to stop by the by the pop-up. Uh, I haven't gotten the chance to do that yet. I was going to do that today, and I apologize. You know, you know, I had a sick kid because that's where, I, where I'm at in life right now. But yeah. it's uh, I appreciate your time. I, you know, we've had a couple of rescheduling. So I just appreciate that you were willing to take the time to sit down with me today to join me on two glasses of bourbon and to... Just tell me about RD1 Spirits because you're doing some really cool stuff out there. Um, so, Barry, again, thank you very much. Uh, is there anything else you want to say before we sign off? Well, I, you know, the only thing I would say to you is that um, by all means, when you're down in Lexington, give me a heads up. We'll meet here at the uh, gift shop pop up and we'll, we'll share a pour and, and talk more offline about, you know, things coming up. We'd lo love to do that. And, you know, all your listeners, um, we'd love to have you come down here and, um, and check us out. That sounds great. I will definitely take you up on that. Well, Barry, I appreciate it. And for all of you listeners out there, uh, don't forget to hit the sub subscribe button. Uh, give us a five-star review if you want. And uh, join us next uh, in two weeks for our next episode of Two Glasses of Bourbon. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thanks, Barry.